Um, I don't know how you feel about listening to a sermon on a genealogy, a list of names like we've just read. Um, some of you it might seem about as interesting as reading a telephone book um, or a dictionary, um, although you can't actually find telephone books anymore. They don't think they really exist. Um, as some of us, you might have listened to the names and um, there are some names that you recognize, uh, some names you recognize and, uh, and some you might know the stories that go with them. Uh, and then for some of us, I think we might have just been uh, listening to see if Nev would pronounce all the names correctly, and he did a great job. Well done. My, um, my instruction when, um, sorry, I know my, my graphic has gone funny on the screen, I'm not quite sure, just ignore that. Um, uh, my instruction when people are reading names like that is just read them with confidence, and nobody will be any of the wiser, you'll assume that you had it wrong. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, Maybe if you've never heard much of the Bible or read much of the Bible, you might be thinking, why, do we, why are we going to spend 20 minutes thinking about that list rather than skipping on to the good part, which is the birth of Jesus that happens in the rest of chapter 1? Um, well, we're not actually going to get to that story proper of Jesus' birth until next week, um, not until we've stopped to wonder why Matthew would include this list. Um, why would he start his story about Jesus with his list of names. Um, why is the list so significant and what does it say about Jesus? Um, and I think the answer is this. It tells us that um, it's not just this part of the Bible, Matthew and the Gospels. This is not the only part of the Bible that's about Jesus. Um, we're going to see from the genealogy that actually the whole Bible is a story that points towards Jesus. It's a story just waiting for the birth of this character, the Christ or the Messiah, to be revealed. So why don't we pray and then we'll look at the passage in detail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've caused these words to be recorded for our instruction so we can know you and trust your plans for us and for all things. As we look at this family tree of Jesus, uh, would you help us to see that the whole Bible points to him? Help us to lift him up in praise as the Christ and Messiah and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I'm kind of really excited to be opening the Bible with you today. You may not be so excited about the genealogy, but I'm excited because we're opening a new book of the Bible. We're going to start um, a teaching series in Matthew. Um, so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be working through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, uh, and then after Christmas in the new year, we'll finish off chapters 3 and 4, and, and actually we'll work our way through Matthew over the next couple of years. Um, but I love looking at the Gospels because they're an account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's a really easy series to invite people to. Um, if you're a visitor today, we don't always preach on genealogies. Don't be, um, don't be too frightened. Um, but um, the reason I haven't skipped over the genealogy today is um, actually when we work our way through the Bible systematically, which is our normal practice here at Robbo Church, um, it means that we actually get to do the hard work of, of, of asking the question, why has God left this for us? Why has God put this part of the Bible? Um, there's no parts of the Bible that are irrelevant. And so as we read them, we kind of actually get to ask God, what do you want us to learn from this? What, what do you want us to know? And um, why have you caused this difficult idea to be uh, written? And um, what it also prevents when we work our way systematically through the Bible is it prevents me from, as a preacher from just preaching on all the things I'd like to preach on every week. Actually, we let God set the agenda. Uh, and so we work our way through and God, God's got this and that for us to learn. So uh, we are going to hear today about how God's big story through the Old Testament all lands and points to Jesus. So uh, why, don't we, um, why don't we open up and look at this list of people from the Old Testament. So um, 
Our passage starts right there in verse 1. Matthew, he records two of the biggest names in the history of Israel. Um, In the two names there, you've got, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, who's the Messiah. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So the writer of the gospel, Matthew, he's showing that Jesus has pedigree with God's people. Uh, Jesus can trace his heritage all the way back to King David, uh, that great king of the Old Testament, and then even further back to Father Abraham, if you know the song Father Abraham had. Many sons, or many children we say now. Um, They were all sons though, Um, I think, at least the ones we know about. Uh, That is, if you'd open your Bible... um, Uh, This is, I think, what what they're trying to tell us. You can trace Jesus all the way back, all the way through, almost to the beginning of the Bible, to chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, We can find Jesus' family tree all the way back. Um, And it's pretty amazing to be able to trace your family tree back that far, isn't it? Is there anybody here who's related to First Fleet or First Convicts? Back, there's so many. Well, you guys... I, I, we didn't have time for stories. Um, you, know, you know, here in Australia, you know, we've only got about 200 years of colonized history. Um, but if you can, you know, if you've got relatives who are first fleet or even convicts, it's something to brag about. And um, maybe here in the district, your family goes back six or seven generations. Well, that's something, that, you know, the heritage that you uh, kind of want to claim as, as historic. Well, that's, I think, what Matthew's doing here with Jesus. Uh, he's showing that Jesus is related to... Um, the royal line of Israel's kings. Um, And it's kind of interesting. When you look at the passage in full, there's sort of three sections. You get the first section, Abraham to David, and then you get from David to the exile, and then you get from the exile to Jesus. Well, what we're getting here is a list list of the ancient leaders of God's people. That's Abraham to David. These were the patriarchs. They were the the ancient leaders. Uh, And then you get David, who was the first king of Israel, was actually the second king, wasn't he? But he was the first good king. He was the kind of the high point. And then you get the disastrous history through all the bad kings after David, um, where they lost the promised land. Uh, God's people lose the promised land. They lose the throne. They lose the temple. Um, they get wiped out. So what we're seeing in these three sections is um, the big story of the Old Testament written in large. Um, Now, and I think if that was all this list was, was just a a kind of a family tree, um, I don't think I'd spend 20 minutes on it. It wouldn't be worth a whole sermon. There are lots of great characters in the Bible, um, but Jesus is more than just a great character. Uh, He's not just any old king in the line of David. And and Matthew shows us that with the structure of the passage. He he maps out these three great eras of the patriarchs and the kings and then the exile. And in each generation, uh, sorry, in each era, he picks out 14 generations to represent that period Um, and so some of the sections are really accurate if you look at verse 3 there's that section about Perez the father of Hezron well those are copied word from word from uh, the book of Ruth in chapter 4 and 1 Chronicles 2 some some parts are really really accurate and then you get to sections for the David uh, David and the exile and and you might recognize the names but if you trace them through the Bible you'd see that some generations get skipped so why is it that some generations get skipped? Um, lots of people have asked that question. Why does Matthew try to come up with a perfect 14 generations for each of the three eras? Because um, it's not exactly the same as it's written in the Bible historically. Um, I'm going to tell you a secret, guys. I don't know the answer. Uh, plenty of um, academics have tried to work it out. Um, but I think there's a point behind it. I think the big point of these three lists is to show that Jesus is kind of like the last 
in the line of Israel's history. And not in a bad way like God's people die out with Jesus. Um, Rather that the history of God's people all has a symmetry. There's a symmetry to the eras of God's people that all lead to Jesus. He's the high point. He's the end point. Um, Because if we go back to Genesis 12, this is the beginning of the story. And we're actually going to work our way through the Abraham story in our Old Testament teaching next year but when you come back to Genesis 12 it's the beginning of God's story to remake a people for himself after Adam and Eve sin in the garden of Eden and they're thrown out this is how God restores a people for himself and we see the beginning of God's plan to reverse the curse and to undo the damage of human sin I don't know if we're singing that song today one of the Christmas songs says far as the curse is found what is that one joy to the world we are doing that one don't know if we've got the curse in this one um god is going to undo the curse he's going to undo the curse and it happens beginning of the story comes through abraham's family so god appears to abraham tells him to pack his bag leave his father's household and he makes this promise to him he says i'm going to make you into a great nation i'll bless you i'll make your name great you'll be a blessing i'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i'll curse and this is the big part he says and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is the beginning of God's story to restore blessing to the world. It's a huge promise in the story of the Bible, uh, beginning of God's chosen people, Israel, um, who feature all through the Old Testament. Um, They're the focus of God's blessing, uh, even when they don't deserve it. So when you come back to our genealogy, we're, we're reminded of God's ability to do the impossible. God promised Abraham, in that third line there, he promised Abraham as many children as there are stars in the sky. Um, And it was impossible, wasn't it? Because Abraham was almost 100 and his wife was 90. Uh, In fact, they were 75 and 65 when when God made the promise, but they had to wait another 25 years before the kids were born. I was, I'm gonna say this, I was at the early service this morning and, um, and we imagined what would it be like if the oldest people in the room in another five or six or seven years from now became pregnant. And started having children. Weird, right? Well, that's the story of Abraham and Sarah there. I see people looking at me judgingly. Let me move on with the sermon. They'd never been able to have children, but there on the list is Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. This Isaac who was born in impossible circumstances. Uh, These impossible circumstances, we need to remember that when we think about Jesus and the virgin birth. You know, it's impossible, right? Well, of course it's not impossible to the God who breathed life into the stuff of creation, who made everything out of nothing. Um, Sarah, at 90 years old, God breathes life into her. God shows us that nothing will stop his plans from being accomplished. And then you got Isaac, who's the father of Jacob. Um, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, Judah and his brothers, they're the 12 leaders who become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, aren't they? Uh, And in fact, Israel comes from Jacob. The name Israel was given to Jacob. That's what God said to him. So I'm gonna make you into this great nation, that promise to Abraham gets fulfilled one more step along the line. And then from verse six, uh, four to six onwards, um, we see the family uh, line of Jesus make its way into the promised land. So now they're coming into the promised land. At verse five, we see Rahab. 
Remember her, the prostitute, a Canaanite woman, not, a, not an Israelite at all. A Canaanite um, in Jericho, she hid Joshua and his men while they were spying out the land. And then a bit further down, we see Ruth. Um, Ruth, who uh, was not part of God's people, she was from outside of God's people, but she was shown kindness by Boaz. And then she finds herself included in this royal family that Jesus is part of. And then it comes all the way down to King David, who represents that high point of God's people in the Old Testament. Um, under David, this king, we see God's people living in God's place. They're living under God's rule. Uh, on the throne, they have a king who is a man after God's own heart. And in David's and Solomon's time, we see Israel blessed with peace and prosperity. And that's where God makes another huge promise that moves the story forward. And that's the one we read before. God made this promise to uh, King David, he said, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So God promises that he's gonna make this house, this dynasty, this lineage for David that will continue. He says in verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God makes this promise that the throne of David will continue forever, that God's people won't be removed from his uh, presence, they won't be removed from their privileged position uh, because God will provide for them. He will provide a king. He will be with his people permanently in this house that Solomon would build, um, the temple, of course. So this, again, this beautiful high point in the history of God's people. But it's a short-lived high point, isn't it? Uh, when we come back to the genealogy, we're reminded that even though God's people are in God's place and under God's rule, they still have a problem with sin. And we see it in the next line. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The problem of sin is there in the kings, isn't it? Solomon is born to Bathsheba, who was another man's wife. When David saw her and he decided that he wanted her, and when he found out that she was pregnant, he had the woman's husband killed. That was Uriah. And that problem with sin, it eats away at the kings from Solomon, who was led away from God because of his many wives, to the kingdom, which split in two after Solomon's death. So Rehoboam there, the kingdom splits into two at that point. Are the, two, are the 12 tribes who were united, they become two kingdoms now, north and south. You had Israel and Judah, you've got 10 tribes north and two tribes south. And if you read through the book of two kings, you read about all of the kings and how few of them followed after God and how many of them followed after foreign gods. They destroyed God's people. They didn't lead them into obedience. And that eventually leads to the exile. Do you see at the bottom line there? The time of the exile to Babylon. Um, by the time of the exile to Babylon there in verse 11, the northern kingdom, Assyria, uh, sorry, the northern kingdom, it had already been wiped out by the Assyrians 200 years earlier, 722 BC. Then in 586 BC, the, the Babylonian empire uh, wiped out the southern kingdom of Judah, the exile to Babylon. They captured the king, they destroyed the temple. And when you hold up God's promises to Abraham and David and you see this house that's going to endure forever and then it's cut off by this exile, cut off by God's people being taken away, it looks like God has abandoned his people. It looks like his promises might fail and, and that's that great sadness in the era 
in the Old Testament, but between the Old and the New, where God's people have fallen from grace. They've fallen from greatness, and they end up being ruled over for 500 years by a succession of other empires, like the, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, not to mention the Babylonians and Assyrians. And they're just waiting all of that time for a rescuer. They're waiting for somebody to redeem them, somebody to restore their fortunes, somebody to return Israel to the great nation that it was before. And that's why this genealogy is so important. Have a look at verse 16 and 17. See, Jesus isn't just the next king in the line of David. He's not just a king who's going to come and restore the fortunes of God's people and, and kick out the Roman Empire. He's much more than that. And this passage mentions a special word three times. You can see it in verse 1, and it's twice here in verse 16 and 17. The last word in each, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Or, or the Christ, as some Bible versions put it. They're both the same word. They mean the same thing. Uh, Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They both mean God's promised and anointed king. And the Messiah was an important idea through that dark period of Israel's history. As terrible kings led God's people away from God. God sent prophets to point his people back to the good king that he would send to remind them that nothing would stand in the way of his good promises, that God would turn their darkness into light. And so we come to that beautiful Christmas reading, uh, one of my favorites in Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And of course, that goes on to say a king will be born. And the government will be on his shoulders and all of those wonderful promises. Jesus, his birth is like God filling this dark world with light. Uh, is anybody who's like me who's got a truck with big spotlights on the front? Um, you know, on the very dark nights around here when you're on a road with nobody else, you put your spotlights on the front of your car and all of a sudden the night is lit up. Uh, it's illuminated and you can see far into the distance, far, far more than you could just see with your high beams. Well, I think Jesus is like that. He floods the world with light, driving away the darkness, and the darkness, particularly the darkness that's in all of us. Um, Jesus exposes our faults and our failings, but he points us to who we'll be one day in his kingdom of light. Because Jesus won't settle for his people staying the way we are in that genealogy. Did you notice that list is full of the heroes of the faith? But they're all like you and me. They're all sinful. They're all in need of a savior. They're all hopeless without a king to defeat the darkness that currently rules our hearts and minds. We need to be remade. Uh, God's people need to be remade. In his image, our broken hearts need to be mended so they can beat once again for the creator who breathed life into them at the beginning. And you know what? Jesus does that for us. Jesus remakes our hearts because he's not just a historical character he's the one who writes history come back to Matthew 1 verse 1 with me there's a little gift in the original language that um, I don't know why they don't put this in the in the English translations um, it's actually really hard to see here but but this word genealogy um, this is the genealogy of, of Jesus in the original Greek it's written like this it actually says the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah Genesis is the name of the first book of the Bible. It starts uh, the creation story in the beginning. God made the heavens and the earth. And then, of course, you come to um, John chapter 1, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are Genesis stories. Matthew tells us that Jesus is part of Genesis. Uh, 
as he writes his list of the history of people's, uh, the history of God's people, he's casting Jesus' birth as a new creation moment. It's a new genesis. God's people are being made new and, and recreated. They're being reborn through this Messiah who'll finish God's plan to reverse the curse of sin. See, what began with Abraham finds its fulfillment in the Messiah. In Jesus is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and the new people of God who will live with him forever. Can you see how that's exciting? Uh, Far more exciting than a list of names on a page that don't seem to make sense. It's this anticipation, this promise of what's to come. Um, I've always loved Christmas and I love the anticipation of what the day is going to be like, what gifts I might receive. I I love that anticipation of, you know, getting a big turkey and um, spending time with the family. But None of that anticipation is the same as the celebration will be when Jesus returns. None of that can compare with what that day will be like. And for lots of us, there might have been times of darkness this year. And perhaps you're still in a season of darkness and you can't see your way beyond it. Well, actually, I think this passage teaches us there'll be a time when Jesus overcomes the darkness, when that darkness will be gone, when the light pushes it all away, the grief will pass, And the path in front of you will be clear. Uh, And unlike it was for God's people in the Old Testament, they didn't know when that light would come or how it would come. But we do. We've seen it. We know who the Messiah is. And Matthew makes it abundantly clear. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. We know how the Messiah overcomes the darkness. He goes to the cross and he takes our darkness into himself. He dies on the cross. He goes to the place of judgment for us. So there's nothing that can stand between us and the forgiveness of God. It means that no matter what your darkness is, whether it's something going on or something that you've done, no matter what your darkness is, no matter what the situation, it's not permanent if you know Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus the Messiah. It's not permanent, at least not beyond this lifetime. There's so many people in that genealogy whose lives were flawed, whose sins are written large for us to remember. But that's not how God remembers them because he's making all things new. He's making you new. That's his promise. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, the, for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, greater than King David, greater than Father Abraham, the one who brings life, the one who brings us into eternal life the one who brings your forgiveness, the one who brings your presence. We pray, Father, that we would trust him deeply today for the sake of our salvation and so the one who died might be glorified. We pray, we praise you, we exalt you and we glorify you. Amen. Will you join us uh, as we sing?